Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome to Season 2 of Latinx Visions. Bienvenidos, bienvenidas, bienvenides a todos. We're excited to be back. You know, we, we've got a new season in store for you focused around Afro-Latinidad this time. So that's something I've been looking forward to. Yeah, new year, new season. Vamos a estar hablando de la Afro-Latinidad. Very excited about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we did change things up a little bit this semester. We are doing four episodes instead of five. Basically, all we did was combine the film and television content into one episode. Um, and that's just for our own scheduling purposes. But we've been on break for a little while. We've had January off from classes. Yeah. So as, as everybody knows, this has been like a, a, a strange, to say the least, like holiday season, then like uh, start of the year. So I've been mostly at home, yeah, protecting my loved one from the virus and kind of like preparing for the new semester. But I was uh, also thinking, right, like one of the reflection of this time, like kind of uh, isolated is also like to think about what is bringing us joy these days, these very difficult days. And I wanted to ask that question to you. Yeah, what is bringing you joy these days? What are what things are, are you doing? Maybe watching, maybe reading things that you're like uh, thinking about that are, are bringing excitement to, to your life in this like very complicated and, and many times painful days. Yeah, well, I mean, absolutely. We ended up having our holiday plans change as well because we did have COVID in the house, mild luckily. But we did we did a lot of watching of things, you know, the the Cobra Kai and uh, and that that type of binging on on Netflix. But mm -hmm. <laughs> I love January because I get to read for fun in January. So I've been I've been really listening to audiobooks and and reading different novels and comics. And, um, you know, just this morning I went out and got myself a new comic anthology on Reptile to read mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm really looking forward to digging into that how about you yeah i've been uh, i've been reading for fun as well i'm reading for for what i'm uh for my new courses uh but one thing that i've been reading that i have been like enjoying is a book on on the afro musician afro puerto rican musician cortijo that talks about like the geographies of blackness in puerto rico and that has been like really illuminating for my research for my classes but also for for fun to learn a lot about yeah santurce in in san juan as a as a as a place of blackness and as a place that has a, a, a lot of influx of the Afro-Caribbean uh, sounds uh, has been like really, uh, really cool to read and to research and investigate. I also, I also have been like watching the Winter Jazz Fest. Yeah, right now it's still like going on. It's two weeks and uh, it has been great to, to listen to so many like 
really like uh, really interesting, like groundbreaking jazz musician. This has been online. Usually they have this uh, festival. The Winter Jazz Fest is usually, of course, a, 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 with a lot of live presentations all over the city. So they have to cancel that. So they move it online. And uh, uh, the good thing about that is that you're able to like experience more, more shows. Uh, yeah, because I would it's imagine. more accessible, right? On one side, it's like uh, creates like the melancholy, uh, melancholic feeling about like missing on those live shows. But at the same time, it's good that everybody's able, yeah, to yeah. to watch and to to experience these uh, magnificent performers that are like uh, coming up these days in the jazz genre. So it has been like I've been uh, watching a lot of jazz videos, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I, no, I think that's fantastic. I mean, I know what you're saying about that sort of melancholy of not being able to be in person, but also the enjoyment of of being able to participate in some form with the the media that happened with um, Comic Con in 2020. You know, we had all the panels ended up on Zoom and it was nice because you didn't have to worry about were there enough seats in the room <laughs> for you mm -hmm. to attend, which yeah. is usually a problem in person in Comic Con. But um, yeah, so I've been I've been doing that, too. You know, I, I did uh, one of the local bookstores in the city, did a talk with a couple of Latinx comic artists that are writers that I'm interested in. So I get to listen to them talk and, you know, things that you wouldn't necessarily be able to make it to physically. But yeah, you can yeah, tune yeah. in. It's a lot of yeah. fun. <laughs> As a father of a four-year-old, I, I appreciate the, the opportunity to watch these shows because usually I can like not be outside, out and about in the city late at night. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's also good. <laughs> not just because of the virus, but because of yeah. your sleep. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and because I have to take care of, of, of my loved one. Yeah. Of my of, yeah. Of the me have. So Absolutely. let's talk about our episode today. Yeah, well, in this episode, we're actually going to be discussing both film and television, like I mentioned before. Uh, specifically, we're going to be considering Afro-Latinx representation in the 1994 film I Like It Like That and the 2018 television series Pose. Yeah, there are numbers of themes that overlap between the two works, but for this episode in a specific, we will focus on trans life in Latinx communities, uh, shows some family versus biological family, queer activism, and the fluidity of Afro-Latinx culture. Yeah, we'll just cover it all. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, we will wrap up with a few additional recommendations for television and film that highlight the Afro-Latinx experience. I think that's always great to give people an opportunity to explore further. Mm -hmm, definitely. All right. So to start out, we want to give you a little bit of background on the show and the movie. If you're not familiar with them, uh, give you a, a little bit of background on them. So I'm going to start out with Pose. Pose is a U.S. drama television series that ran for three seasons and aired from June 2018 to June 2021 on FX. It features African-American, Latinx and Afro-Latinx, LGBTQIA plus and gender nonconforming characters and the drag ball culture scene from the 1980s and 1990s. The featured characters are dancers and models who compete for recognition and trophies in the underground ballroom culture. These individuals have also created a network of chosen families known as houses where they give and receive support to one another. 
So the show was created by Afro-Puerto Rican Stephen Canals, along with Brad Falchuk and Ryan Murphy. And it features performances by Michaela J. Rodriguez, Dominique Jackson, Billy Porter, India Moore, and more. <laughs> it is important to note that the trans characters in these shows are actually played by trans and non-binary actors. And some characters have parallel to the life experiences of the actors. Yeah, for example, Dominique Jackson was actually a part of the New York ballroom scene in the 1990s. Uh, Billy Porter, as many may know, was diagnosed with HIV. And India Moore was a model for um, Dior and Gucci. For today's episode, we will focus heavily on Rodriguez's character, Blanca Rodriguez Evangelista. But we will also consider the other members of the house of Evangelista. It's so weird to say that word in English, isn't it? <laughs> but that's the way she I will say evangelista, but, but yeah, evangelista, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I read that too, and I'm like, evangelista, sure, yeah. <laughs> well, as a final piece for this, I want to mention that in 2021, Rodriguez actually made history as the first trans actress nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series. And just this month, she was the first trans actress to win a Golden Globe for Best Actress in Television Drama Series. So both wins were for her role as Blanca in Pose. So, yay. Yeah, our yeah, first one. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the film. The film's called I Like It Like That, like that uh, famous Boogaloo songs from the 60s. So I Like It Like That is a 1994 U.S. comedy drama film that follows the lives of Lisette and Chino Linares and the French family and community that surround the couple in the Bronx. Uh, Chino is in the best husband to Lisette. He works as a bicycle messenger, but can barely support their family of five. To top things off, he is also having an affair with another woman in the neighborhood. After Shino is arrested for looting, Lisette is forced to find work to support herself and her three children. While looking for a modeling job, she happens to instead land a job as an assistant to an opportunistic and masculinist record executive. By the time Chino gets out of prison, things have changed. Lisette is more independent and may not need to depend on him any longer. Yes. The film stars Luna Lauren Velez and John Seda. It was directed by Darnell Martin, the first African-American female filmmaker to direct a film produced by a major film studio. I want to point out, though, that uh, Julie Dash was the first African-American filmmaker to direct a film in 1991 with Daughters of Dust. But Martin's film was the first to be picked up and produced by a major film studio. This film also features a trans character, Lisette's sister, Alexis. However, unlike in Pose, Alexis is not performed by a trans actress. This is not surprising for a film that was released in the mid-90s. Uh, instead, her role was performed by actor Jesse Borrego, who is probably most well-known for his roles in Fame, 24, and Dexter. And fun fact, uh, Velez, who played Lisette, also had a key role in Dexter, so... They ended up working together again. Let's start with our main segments. Yeah. And uh, today's uh, topic, as we introduced before, is trans life in Latinx communities. Uh, yeah. We're going to start out with some data collected in the 2015 U.S. Transgender Surveys Report on the experience of Latino, Latina, Latinx respondents. While this data is, is six or seven years old at this point, it is the most recent data. 
The survey will be conducted again this year in 2022. I found that fascinating that, you know, they probably wanted to do it in 2020, but things didn't yeah, work as, out. Yeah, so as many things <laughs> has been delayed or canceled or, yeah, yeah understandable. That's, <laughs> that's my that's my guess as for why it's pushed now until 2022. But yeah. at the time of the survey, 21% of the respondents were unemployed and 43% were living in poverty. 31 had experienced homelessness at some point in their lives and 14 had experienced it within the previous year, specifically due to being trans. And a bit of a trigger warning for sexual assault here, but 48% reported having been sexually assaulted in their lives and 12% had been sexually assaulted within the previous year. 32% reported having a negative medical experiences within the previous year due to being trans. And 1.6% were living with HIV. That number is more than five times the overall U.S. rate of uh, 0.3%. At the time of the report, only 7% of respondents indicated that they were out to all people in their lives across all groups. 60% stated that they were out to all or most of their immediate family, that is, who those who they grew up with, and 36% were out to all or most of their extended family. That number decreased with work and school groups. When it comes to family support after coming out, the highest percentage suggests that families are generally supported. 60% uh, of respondents reported supported family. 19% has unsupported families. The other 21% stated that their families were neither supported nor unsupported. Mm -hmm. Almost half of the uh, participants in the survey stated that they had at least one form of rejection from a family member. This varied, but included family who stopped speaking to them or ended the relationship, physical violence by a family member, or being kicked out of the house for being transgender. At the same time, 81% stated that they had at least one family member who actively supported them in one way or another. And 13% of the Latinx survey participants stated that they had participated in sex work at one point or another, while 6% had done so within the previous year. In both cases, more than half of those were trans women. There is much more data in this survey, so much more than we could include in this episode. We will link the report in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. We just wanted to highlight a few data points because they directly correlate with how characters such as Alexis, Blanca, and Angel are portrayed in the film and the TV show. So I actually came across a, an opinion piece written by MJ Rodriguez in November 2020, and it was for the Television Academy. In this piece, she states, when I started reaching the peak of my career as an Afro-Latina and as a woman of the trans experience, as much as I felt I was making strides, there were still those three identities that were holding me back from making it into a space I had always dreamed of being. My confidence began to deplete when I started realizing that I was systematically being placed in a box. She talks about the support she received from her mother, stating, my mother noticed the areas in which I excel as an actress and as a singer. She nurtured and facilitated those dreams as best as she could and put me into art programs from the age of seven all the way up until I was 18 years old. She also prepared me for the obstacles ahead, knowing that as a person who is part of three different minority communities, how much harder I will have to work compared to my white peers. The fight for identity, existence, and liberation for myself and others like me will be long and challenging. And of quote, 
This support has been key to Rodriguez's successes in the industry, it has given her the will to always fight and fight back uh, oppression in the industry. She goes on to explain that, quote, there's just not enough being done within Black and Latino communities as far as representation is concerned, behind and in front of the cameras. Diversity has always been pushed in my household, so not seeing it fully exhibited and embraced breaks my heart. I do feel like there's a lot of exposure around our identities as people of color, but there's still much more that needs to be done. She wraps up her piece by reiterating how the most important thing is having a seat at the table. For her, in her industry, that means having the support of the Television Academy. This includes the Academy recognizing the hard work that many diverse groups of people have fought hard for and acknowledging the art and the talent. That last sentence is a quote from uh, MJ Rodriguez. It seems to me like what she's arguing for here, you know, it's pretty important. Representation is important both on the screen and behind the scenes. If we think about Alexis and I like it like that, you know, what would it have meant to have an actual trans woman play that role? Right. Until very recently, that was not a possibility. <laughs> yeah. You can even think of Jared Leto in Dallas Buyers Club in 2013 or Eddie Redmayne in The Danish Girl from 2015. That's not even 10 years ago right, that we're, we're talking about here. But the fact that we're now in a place where real trans women are starting to play the roles of trans women is a crucial element to changing the statistics that we mentioned above. Disagreeing a bit with MJ Rodriguez, maybe, and, and this is a personal opinion, the goal is not to only have a seat at the table, but to have our own tables. I think Pose is a show that does that. Even it's in, in its evolution, we could notice how it grounds itself with what the real plot and portrait should be. The first season employs a parallel storyline about white suburban characters, kind of as a given in mainstream TV. But after season two, it turns its full attention to the Black and Afro-Latinx characters. It also argues how to sit with Madonna at the proverbial table was not a real breakthrough for these performers. Yeah, you know, it's a start, but, you know, just like we talked about when we were uh, addressing the Rita Moreno interview, we shouldn't be satisfied with the little pieces that are given. We need to keep, you know, like like you said, having your own table and not mm -hmm. just a spot at the table. Like a spot at the table is all well and good, but it's not enough. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> keep fighting. Keep on keeping on. The next thing we wanted to address is this idea of biological families versus chosen families. And honestly, I think in some ways this sort of ties into the idea of like patriarchy versus matriarchy to a certain extent. If we look specifically at Alexis from the film and Blanca from the show and their biological families, we see this general rejection, right? Both Alexis and Blanca are rejected by their parents. They're both unable to return home to see their parents because of who they are. Alexis tries and is beaten. I mean, luckily they don't show that violence, but they show the end result of it. And when Blanca does, it's too late, right? Her mother has already passed. In both of these cases, the characters are ostracized because of their seeming rejection of the patriarchal expectation. In other words, they're deemed not man enough. Yeah. The, the other thing with the, the biological families is um, the dead naming that takes place, right? In both the film and the show, the biological family of the trans characters we meet dead name their children. That is, they call them by the name assigned to them at birth, not their newer gender affirming name. 
Lisette, even does this when she gets mad at Alexis in the film at one point saying, quote, excuse me, who died and left you a womb? All the silicone in the world ain't going to make you a mother, so don't even talk about what you don't know, end of quote, followed by her death name. Yeah, that that line was probably like the, the most gut-wrenching line in the film to me. It just, that one really, really, oh. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a difficult uh, line to hear, right? And especially uh, with like the whole line is bad, but to add the dead name to the end is really just you know like twisting the knife even yeah, further. Yeah, it seals the insult. Yes, definitely. Yeah, the same thing happened with Pose when Blanca's mother dies and she goes to see her sister about it. The sister Carmen dead names and misgendered her. Later, her brother does the same. In the final interaction between Blanca and her sister, we do see that Car Carmen finally refers to her as Blanca. Yeah, I mean, it's a start, but it's not much, <laughs> you know, and we don't actually I, I don't recall that that Carmen ever came back in any of the future seasons or episodes. So it's not like we saw any real progress in that relationship. Mm -hmm. One thing that really stood out to me in the film was Chino's mother. And and this really brought to mind the ideas of internalized patriarchy, but combined with racism, because, you know, <laughs> this is something that we have referring in the past in that when we were doing that episode on one day at a time, we talked about Rita Moreno and how like Rita Moreno, like in real life, have, have been involved in this type of controversia. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's even been tweets about, you know, oh, she's bringing Rosaria chino's mm -hmm. mother to life right yeah. um yeah. she is the only parent that we see for chino in the film and she's also the only one who visits the house like we we meet lisette's parents but they're only seen working from their cart rosaria's appearance here seems to be more performative than anything else she it just gave me the impression that she just wanted to show like what the the good puerto rican mother right to show what that was, because that's what she's expected to do. And she can do it better than Lisette. And she, you know, it, it seemed very performative to me because she has internalized the patriarchal roles that she believes are expected of her and she projects them onto Lisette. So, you know, she comes over and helps with the children, but it's only because her daughter-in-law isn't good enough to be able to do that, is failing at doing that. Yeah, but of course, this is also combined with racism. In one scene where Shin is trying to comb Minnie's hair, the, uh, uh, his daughter, and ask for his mother's help, uh, she claims that she doesn't know how to deal with what she calls nappy hair and reminds everyone, in our family, we have pure Castilian blood, right? Oh. Demonstrating this uh, also like very problematic uh, Puerto Rican stand of, of highlighting or centering the, the Spanish uh, heritage, right? Uh, the fact that they all put along with her shows that this is clearly something she has said many times before, right? It's kind of like a, a catchphrase that she uh, constantly says. Or at yeah. least it is suggested that this is something that this internalized racism and this Eurocentrism is something that she um, everybody knows her for. And honestly, like, I think a lot of this is directed at Lisette, but it's not only a dig against Lisette, who she openly dislikes, but it's also something that her grandchildren are going to internalize, like whether that's her intention or not, you know, 
she can say that we're pure Castilian, but these children aren't. And so she's she's, she's not Castilian. Yeah, she is. Uh, no. she's Puerto Rican. She's Puerto yeah, Rican. Puerto Ricans are not Castilian. Yeah, that's, <laughs> well, that's beside the point. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the big mistake. Yeah. When you center, right, like uh, the, the uh, European heritage over everything else. Right. And all, all the other like African heritage, indigenous heritage from the from the Caribbean. Right. You're like destructing right uh the richness and the wealth of the uh, of caribbean culture and puerto rican culture in this case absolutely so you know rosaria is definitely even as a woman a, a representative of the patriarchy and the patriarchal expectations but on the flip side we have the matriarchy yeah we could talk about blanca as a house mother right matriarchy is a social system in which women hold the primary positions of power there is no expectation of a quote unquote man of the house, as we saw in a like it like that with uh, little Chino after his father is arrested or with Chino himself. Right. Yeah. The matriarchal structure is common in the ballroom scene that we see in post. However, often to varying degrees of success, we see this first with Electra, then with Blanca and even later with Candy and Lulu. The ballroom community and subculture rely heavily on the idea of chosen family. These households are socially configured families that mainly comprise of Black and Latinx LGBTQ people who generally reside together. And motherhood in ballroom culture is not biological, of course, but it's community based. It does, however, incorporate many of the values found in so-called traditional or biological families. Things like education and supporting others in the family are crucial to the family dynamic. It serves as an important way to provide support for those who may have been rejected by their biological families, and it helps curb homelessness of Black and Latinx queer youth. The house of Evangelista or Evangelista give us a mother figure in Blanca, a queer mother for a queer community. Being a queer mother breaks from the traditional practices and challenges the common expectation, or you could say patriarchal expectation of what it means to be a quote-unquote good mother. Blanca's ideas of what it means to be a mother comes from both her biological mother and her former house mother, Electra. But more often than not, it is through a rejection of these ideas that she creates her ideals of motherhood. And it works for her, you know, she even wins mother of the year from the ballroom community. This role is given to someone who, as Pray Tell, played by Billy Porter, explains, quote, provides moral and social support to her children and taught them what it means to move through life with grace and humility. This happens because in her house, Blanca puts emotional bonds, personal relationships and support before the ballroom competitions. So let's talk a little bit about yeah, family support versus family trauma. Yeah. Right? In both posts, and I like it like that, we see family support and trauma caused by family, whether biological or chosen. Alexis's parents have caused her trauma. We know this not only from the beating she receives when she goes to their house, but also from her claim about knowing the traumas of being an eight-year-old little boy. Mm -hmm. Overall, Lisette supports Alexis at least more than her biological parents do. And even Chino doesn't seem to have a problem with Alexis, although I'm not sure if I call that support. No, but I, I will say like the fact that he doesn't seem to have a problem with his children being around Alexis is not something you might necessarily expect from, you know, someone who's trying to be the man. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
In Pose, Blanca's biological family has also caused her trauma. Her brother is physically violent towards her and her sister repeatedly deadnames her and emotionally attacks her. But Blanca's support from her children, Angel, Damon, Ricky, and Lil Poppy, is clear throughout. And I think in particular, this same episode where she encounters her biological siblings, uh, it's called Mother's Day, right? When you contrast those two experiences between her chosen family and her biological family within that episode, it really it really stands out the, the family that she has built. So moving on, we want to also like discuss queer activism and infra politics. Yeah, in my Latinx screen class, we uh, read a, an article entitled Where Does Resistance Begin? by sociologist and ethnographer Cindy Cruz that has been helpful when thinking about queer youth representation in audiovisual media. Cruz explains that resistance happened when youth said no to the alternative they're offering worlds where they're brutalized and oppressed or to the narratives that emerge within these oppressive spaces. In the works we're analyzing today, one place we can see big activist gestures like the ACT UP protest is in POSE. ACT UP stands for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. It is an international grassroots political group working to end the AIDS pandemic. The group works to improve the lives of people with AIDS through direct action, medical research, treatment and advocacy, and working to change legislation and public policies. Pose presents ACT UP meetings and a big action at a Catholic church asking the religious institution to promote safe sex practices. There's also the protest in season two to protect Blanca from being displaced from her nail salon by her corrupt realtor. Although it is more complex and requires more analysis, to some extent, the riot and looting during I Like It Like That could be interpreted as a moment of con contesting social marginalization and extreme poverty in the Bronx. And even Lisette's stubbornness in showing off her skills as a creative agent, even though she was rejected at first by the record executive, might even count under a personal sort of activism. However, Cruz argues that many times queer Latino youth might resist using the smallest of gestures or infrapolitics. She defines infrapolitics as the dissident offstage practices that resist the everyday degradation and experiences of exclusion that make up the daily fabric of LGBTQ plus Latinx youth lives. Yeah, and in other words, fighting back against oppression in a way that might not be as visible to the dominant power on a larger scale anyway. Yeah, example, examples of this might include Blanca from Post claiming the right to enter gay bars, Angel's ways of approaching modern auditions by owning with honesty her narrative on circumstances, and Alexis and I like it like that, creating safe spaces to be trans, but also by confronting transphobia in her family. Yeah, both the film and the show present many examples of what Cruz named resistant socialities. That is, offstage, non-institutional practices of queer Latinx youth. Breathing spaces for youth to reclaim energy, regroup, and create safe spaces. The ballroom scenes in Pose are precisely showing the audience this type of resistant hangouts, if you will. Cruz says that it is in these spaces where the hidden transcript happens. She refers to spaces of rest and leisure where queer people gossip about daily hardship. Example of this type of place include Blanca's apartment, the AIDS cabaret in the hospital, uh, the restaurant where the ballroom and since reunite to plan the ballrooms, and others. 
Cruz says that the hidden transcript also implies the exchange of valuable information about how institutions, organizations, work sites, schools, and youth centers all work. This is particularly important in pose when they discuss issues and methods to fight AIDS or how to navigate auditions, jobs, and school norms. Today, we also want to talk about the fluidity of Afro-Latinx culture. Yeah, um, we want, yeah. I, I, want, I want to refer to another article that has been like important uh, for me and for my students to uh, talk about these topics. Yeah. In his articles, The Plasticity of Culture, Mexican-American documentarian and scholar Ricardo Ainsley challenges ideas that immigrants arrive in the U.S. with, quote, identities defined in the terms of the culture they have left behind and that they gradually relinquish those ties as they became increasingly assimilated. End of quote. He argues instead that immigration-related phenomena have complexity, a rich, fluid, and dynamic character. Alexis, in I Like It Like That, for instance, has a botanica in New York City, a store that searches to feed the spiritual and ritual needs of those who practice Afro-Caribbean santeria. This type of stores has been a staple of Latinx communities in the city for many decades. In the same way, Lisette is able to enter the music business without having to leave her musical culture behind. Actually, her lived musical background is what allows her to succeed in the music business. None of them relinquish their cultural heritage in either the show or the film. Ainsley argues that individuals can be competent in more than one cultural setting and in different cultural contexts without necessarily developing the values of the majority group. He examines how these models uh, quote, attempt to factor in the marginalization effects of racism and social devaluation. Two examples here would be Damon and Angel Evangelista, uh, or Evangelista, <laughs> <laughs> the two rising stars in Pose. And they demonstrate this in the ways they engage with their respective artistic practices. Damon is a dancer, and he's able to excel as a trained dancer but he keeps voguing in the ballroom's scene and is able to teach and perform his original dance forms in other settings. So he takes it beyond the ballroom scene. And meanwhile, Angel arrives at the top of the modeling scene, but likewise, she maintains her connection with Evangelista House and continues to do catwalks in the balls. You know, they, they're, they're still tied to their roots. In the film and the show, the Bronx is shown as Latino New York City, a borough that has suffered social devaluation due to racist policy, but that is vibrant in its own Caribbean culture. Adding a psychological perspective, Ainsley argues that cultural terms are plastic. In day-to-day -day life, cultural terms are infinitely malleable. Quote, we appropriate cultural terms and utilize them as psychological tools as we engage with others around us. In Pose, for instance, we see the prevalence of voguing and later on lip sync. These two queer Black artistic practices emerge from the use and transformation of mainstream cultural materials. Voguing inserts high fashion aesthetics and literal fashion poses into break dancing. Meanwhile, lip sync matches a speaking or singing person's lip movement with song or spoken vocals. Commonly present in drag shows, lip sync has allowed marginalized people to embody stardom in underground spaces. Yeah. As a psychological tool, it allows the experience of acceptance and glamour that their performance desire and are historically left out from. I think those are, are two fantastic examples of, of how it's used, um, specifically in the show. Ainsley also explains 
culture not only shapes and defines us, it also represents a social artifact with which to engage. This is done in ways that tap the central elements of our psychological experience. We see this, and I like it like that. Lisa's knowledge in music, particularly salsa, doo-wop, and Latino R&B, is what lets her be a successful music producer and eventual creator. Literally and figuratively speaking, Lisette understands where the music is coming from and can then can stimulate a level of communication and authenticity from the artists that the white music executives aren't able to tap in any way. Yeah, that I mean that is so evident right from her first interaction with the with the duo there that she is first meets when she's pretending to be the assistant. I think that the the white executive just has no clue whatsoever how to approach these these guys and she she can tell them exactly what they need to hear whether they like it or not but she does it in a way that holds on to her authenticity and also helps promote theirs. Another thing that we thought was important to address was this idea of co-opting and fetishizing of Afro-Latinx culture. Uh, you know, season two of Pose, for example, it starts out hopeful. A lot of this hopefulness comes from the mainstream popularity of Madonna's song Vogue in 1990. The characters are exhilarated by the possibilities of acceptance, visibility, and respect that they think is going to come with Vogue, right? I mean, they're finally being seen ish. <laughs> they read that cultural moment as a breakthrough, not only in regards to pop music, but also in terms of their position in society as queer and trans people. Yeah, for a little while, the song is number one in the charts, and that brings a lot of attention to ballroom culture and even new sources of income to Damon, one of the evangelistas who becomes a dance teacher specialized in voguing. The acclaim of the song Vogue also creates a phenomenon of white women wanting to learn the dance and to feel the excitement of queer Afro-Latinx culture, just like Madonna did when discovering this dance in New York City queer clubs. Honestly, I think those dance classes were probably some of the most cringe scenes <laughs> to watch. <laughs> You're just like seeing these these suburban white women coming into the city uh, to like feel something and they the appropriation of the culture is just it it's not an academic term but it's icky <laughs> <laughs> however the show depicts how this was a short-term engagement these women who are crazy about vogue quickly move on to appropriate the next black dance this one created by mc hammer oh yeah i remember both of them i mean i was a kid so it's a little bit different <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, they were deeply popular in 1990. Oh, yeah. Uh, the song Vogue illustrates a larger dynamic of the superficial consumption of Black culture. Ultimately, it shows the mechanics of this possibility embedded in cultural industry, a type of colonization. A recent documentary from 2016, Strike a Pose, directed by Esther Gould and Rager Swam, explores what happened to Madonna's uh, Vogue dancers, some of them Puerto Rican and, Afro uh, and from Afro-Latinx backgrounds after that period of visibility and quote-unquote fame that came with Vogue. All of them went back to relative obscurity. Paying homage to his cultural contribution, Jose Gutierrez, the main choreographer of Madonna's Vogue, appeared in pose as a judge in many ballroom scenes. That's a, an important fact of the show. That's like a little Easter egg too, though. You know, mm -hmm. like you might not pick up on that. If you know, you know. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, just like the white women in the dance classes, Madonna developed other personas and took on new trends in pop culture. 
Even though they had a key role creating and developing that landmark cultural moment, the industry left the dancers to their own devices. After the, the fad was over, well, they just kind of dismissed them. Season two of Pose uses that same arc of rising and falling from fame as a storyline. Released in the 90s as well, I like it like that, continues this exploration of a Latino boom in music and U.S. culture and of the Bronx as a center of innovative arts. The record executive in the films wants to take advantage of audiences' interest in New York City Afro-Latinx culture. In the film, we see how he is clueless and actually uninterested in an ethical representation of Afro-Latinx sounds and people. He's just interested in cashing in on it. Uh, even his personal relationship with Lisette is marked by the same uh, colonizing dynamics. I will say I love how she she stood up for herself at that point in the film and was like, you know what, if I'm going to be fired, I accept it. And he he did actually say, you know what, like kind of appreciated that fact that that she wasn't just going to like bend to his will. Um, yeah, she showed uh, her strength as a woman, but also as an Afro-Latina woman. And that is very important in the film. That is a very important moment in the film. Absolutely. The film advocates that without actual Latinx people involved in the music business at all levels, not only as performers, there would not be any fair treatment of those creating these bright performances. Yeah, the last topic we want to address today is uh, Afro-diasporic music and food as refuge. Yeah, in the face of emotional stress, people may re-adopt or re-engage with elements of their homeland's culture as a way to cope and feel grounded again. For instance, uh, for Lisette, salsa represents a cultural movement that centers her. It is the sound of her identity to some extent. In the film, every time she's experiencing chaos in her intimate or family life, she reconnects with herself by playing and singing salsa in her bathroom. In Pose, we see other examples of owning Afro-Latinx culture when Blanca cooks arroz con pollo using her Puerto Rican mother's recipe book or at the AIDS cabaret where the performers build moments of healing and grace that are infused by Afro-diasporic musical genres like jazz, R&B, and spirituals. Wrapping things up, today we have seen how Afro-Latinx queer and trans culture in New York City has evolved and continues to ground itself in Afro-Caribbean sound, music, and performances. It's important to highlight how in its fluidity it incorporates and resignify elements of U.S. mainstream media, influencing it as well. Absolutely. Both the film and the show propose that a house has the potential of being a refuge that protects you from patriarchal, racial, gender, and sexual oppression, and that lets you be yourself in todo tu esplendor. All right, so let's wrap up with some recommendations. You know, we mentioned at the beginning, we like to, to add suggestions of other things that you can check out if you want to explore further the theme of our season in this particular medium. So since we're focusing on film and television this week, we have a few Afro-Latinx recommendations to make. So we'll start out with television. This is Amero. This is Nice and El Kid Mero, both of Afro-Caribbean descent, have evolved their public humorous conversation on current events from a popular podcast, Bodega Voice, to their own late night program on Showtime. With their irreverent style, they have kept real as Tupanitas, bros that celebrate and interact with Black culture in general, while keeping their commentary grounded in their experiences growing up in the Bronx. Another important Afro-Latinx uh, TV show is She's Gotta Have It. 
Iconic African-American filmmaker and Brooklyn native Spike Lee transformed his first feature film, She's Gotta Have It, from 1987 into a series about the life of Nola Darling, a queer polyamorous black woman and artist living in contemporary gentrified Fort Green. Spike Lee is a pioneer filmmaker who has portrayed Afro-Latino, Afro-Latinas, Afro-Latinx characters in his films since he started in the 80s, very famously in Do the Right Thing. Mm -hmm. This shows keeps and expands the tradition that tradition, yeah, uh, of having uh, Afro-Latinx character by turning the character he used to play, Mars Blackmon, into a Puerto Rican character. Now he's played by Anthony Ramos. Through Mars and his mixed-race family, the audience gets to explore Afro-Boricua culture and religion. There's a particularly beautiful episode in season two, Oh, You Don't Know, where the main characters go to Puerto Rico to do community work after Hurricane Maria. Through them, Lee visits and documents life in the town of Loisa, one of the epicenters of Black culture in the main island, and brings back Tina, Rosie Perez's character from Do the Right Thing, uh, through a more nuanced and rich perspective than in the original film. I really appreciate when a show, so when when they take films and and adapt them into shows that they don't just recreate what they had in the film before, but they extend that universe and really build on that story. And this sounds like a, a great way in which to do that and also bring multiple films that he did together. Yeah, and Spike Lee is very famous for being very tangential in his way of, of addressing filmmaking and, and now like TV shows, right? And this uh, particular experiment with She's Gotta Have It uh, has allowed him to like explore things that uh, if it was a movie, it will stay like in the in the background of something minor, right? right. But uh, the fact that now she has uh, he has more time allows him to to really dig in and and explore like important elements such as uh, Afro Boricua culture in this case. Yeah, I think that's what draws me to television more so than films is that ability to explore more of the elements more deeply. But you know, a good film can do it too. All right. So I have a TV show, but it's completely switching gears on us here. It's called Alma's Way and it's a kid's show, but it's it's an animated series that just premiered last year in 2021 on PBS Kids. Even from the opening credits, we see the representation, right? The song is bilingual. The visuals are accurate to the Bronx, like the train that they're showing is the right train that goes up into the Bronx. The main character is a young Afro-Puerto Rican girl, Alma Rivera, and the story involves her family and a diverse group of friends and community members. So it was actually created by Sonia Manzano, who, if people don't know, she played Maria on Sesame Street for many years. So keeping that PBS <laughs> connection alive. Uh, it's, it's a great show if you have kids in the preschool, early grade school ages, you know, because I think bringing the, the Afro-Latinx representation at a very young age is key. You know, we've got a lot of adult shows, not a lot. We've got a couple adult shows, but to have something for the kids is great because it establishes positive perspectives on on seeing oneself represented in the media. I have to say that my daughter watched Almas Wade and she's like, she's really uh, liking it. Oh. Um, she's like really enjoying it. And she actually is like, these days she's been like uh, asking for it. Like she wants to see like more episodes from Almas family and, and Almas community. And she feel, I, I, I think that she feels identified with what is happening, right? It's yeah. like this idea of a Puerto Rican girl in New York and the experiences of a Puerto Rican girl in New York resonate with her. 
and, and I have to say also that she's also a, a fan of Sesame Street, and we have been watching on HBO like the the, the classics. Uh, so we started <laughs> like in the in the late '60s, and we have been watching like the development of, of Sesame Street through the years, right? And uh, she adores it, and, and and I have to say that Sesame Street perhaps is like the 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 show that for so many decades, more than 50 years, has been like putting Afro-Latino and yes. Afro-Latina characters uh, to the front, yeah? And yeah. African-American characters to the front, and, and, and we have to uh, celebrate that. Yeah, I mean, Luisa Maria were on it from the very beginning, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, Not and that Sonia I was Manzano, <laughs> right? Sonia Manzano, uh, it's, it's such a groundbreaking figure. Uh, and also like the way they incorporate like uh, the cultural background, it is done in a very responsible way. There's yes. a, like this uh, whole season that the, all the uh, Sesame Street characters go to Puerto Rico and the way they present the Puerto Rico and the way that they explore Puerto Rico was really like uh, rich. Yeah, and, and, and ahead complex of its time. And, and, and nuanced, very ahead of its time, right? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about like films uh, uh, and shows from the past. I want to like highlight a documentary, yeah, from uh, 1990. Yeah, almost 30 years before Post, there was Paris is Burning. Yeah, it's important to highlight that documentary. Yeah, this 1990 documentary focuses on queer performers living in New York City and their house culture, which, as we have been discussing, provides a sense of community and support for often socially ostracized performers. Just like the series, the documentary focuses on how groups from each house compete in elaborate balls influenced by the world of fashion. Similarly, it also touches on issues of racism, poverty, and trans life. The film featured interviews with a number of renowned performers, drag queens, both dancers of the period, including Willie Ninja, Pepper La Vella, and Dorian Curry. All of them are inspiration for the 2018 show's post. It'd be a, a fantastic complimentary piece. If you've watched the show and you're really interested in it, this will give you a lot more of that background on the, the real life situation. Uh, the film I want to recommend is is actually not a U.S. film. It's a Venezuelan film from 2013. Uh, it was both written and directed by Mariana Rondon. The movie is called Pelo Malo. It centers around Junior, a nine-year-old kid who lives in Caracas with his mother and little brother. His father is deceased, and he, Junior, is concerned about his hair, which is a curly, afro-textured hair, often referred to as pelo malo, or bad hair. He's always trying to straighten it, which causes tension between him and his mother, who is afraid his concern over his looks means he's gay. Eventually, she gives him an ultimatum either to shave his head or move in with his grandmother. And, and the reason I picked this film is really because I, you know, I think this resonates with a lot of our students, this concept of pelo malo in general and mm -hmm. and sort of the stigma put on hair in the black and Afro Latinx communities. Yeah, and, and, and also like it, it, it connects with uh, the discussion we were having with the uh, Rita Moreno character, right, and, and her idea, right, in the, in the film of celebrating Castilian culture, yeah, and then like uh, separating herself and, and her family and her notion of family from the African background, right? Yes. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Before we sign off, we want to share some feedback or comments that we got from listeners on our season one episodes. The first email was from Kevin, and this is on season one, episode one, one day at a time. Kevin writes, 
When a program uses stereotypes rather than developing a whole character, it is sometimes acceptable. And this is especially true if the character is a side character. A character must also have their own individuality, not only fit into a stereotype. Lydia, the grandmother, has a difficulty in one day at a time because she solely plays her stereotype as an elderly conservative grandma. I can agree this is a concern. This renders the show as generic as it only sticks to pointing out stereotypes instead of creating its own identity. Afro-Latin depiction in this show is also influenced by stereotypes. The Alvarez family is a Cuban-American family with lighter complexion. The program has a distinct European touch to it. There are microaggressions towards Afro-Latinos throughout the program, and there are hardly any Afro-Latin characters. Countries in the Caribbean, such as Puerto Rico and Cuba, are shown as only descendants of Spain. These stereotypes divide individuals from Caribbean nations into smaller groups, claiming that they are all white or light-skinned. The color black is ignored. As a result, the show appears to be more constrained and generalized to contain a European feel to it. So I don't know if you have any thoughts or reactions to that, if you wanted to comment. <laughs> uh, th that is something that I agree with, right? Like Kevin's opinion, I think it's on point. And that's something that we talked about when we were uh, discussing that show, right? All his points resonate with uh, my own thinking about the, the show, right? And yeah. I feel like that, that uh, it, one thing important about that show is that it can take us to that discussion. I feel like that's uh, a good thing. Yeah, yeah. That we can uh, use that show to engage in, 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 in discussions about race in Latin America and Puerto Rico, right, in, in Cuban societies as well. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting that, you know, it's another example of uh, Rita Moreno. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's talk about the other uh, feedback that we received in, in, in this past couple of months, right? This is from Valerie, and, and she's also addressing one day at a time. Uh, she says, and I'm quoting her, I heard the phrase mejorar la raza many times throughout my life. My parents have many times told me that this is what I need to think about when looking for a partner. When I try to educate them on the origin of this phrase, they just brush it off and don't really acknowledge it, even though it is a pretty big reminder of our colonized past. Moving on, divorce used to be very stigmatized in the Latino community although it has lessened with newer generations to look down upon. I feel like there's this unsaid rule in which a Latina wife must stay with her husband no matter the situation. A lot of time, if a marriage fails, the woman gets most of the blame for not, quote unquote, satisfying her husband. Yeah, what do you I, think about uh, Valerie's opinion? I think... Uh... Like the thing about the mejorar la raza and, and the fact that she's even trying to address it with her parents is a step, but the they brush it off is really, it's a little disheartening. But I think yeah, it, 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 it kind of like complements what uh, Kevin is saying and what the show is also presenting, right? Like uh, not that the show is presenting that critique, but we can make that critique about the show, right? Yeah, it's important because it happens in real life. Right. And that's a real ideology, the, the ideology of mestizaje and, uh, as an ideology that is rejecting blackness as anti-black. And, and when she addresses, you know, divorce as well, I think, you know, it's just that is one thing that that the show does pretty well, I think, in terms of how it addresses the divorce between uh, Penelope and her husband, it it pulls in the the realities of the family, maybe questioning or criticizing that decision, but in the end, uh, supporting it. And so it, it is a reflection of the changes that she's mentioning here in her email. 
Yeah, definitely. The the feminist perspective in the shows are are, are stronger than the racial perspective. <laughs> Well, we want to thank the, the listeners for those messages. You know, we really appreciate your comments. And remember, you all can share your thoughts with us as well, whether it's about today's episode or any of our previous episodes. We're going to continue doing this type of uh, of reading, right? Uh, yes. We're really interested in, 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 in having you participate in our dialogue. Yeah. So you can always reach out to us on social media or by email. Yeah. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Latin Exhibitions. Our email address is latinexhibition at gmail.com. And we love to include your thoughts in a future episode. Subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. You can now do so on either Apple or Spotify. All, All right. right. Estamos a la escucha. Dale. Until next time. <laughs>